Early in the morning of September the 29th, 1982, Mary Kellerman, a 12-year-old girl from the Elk Grove Village, a suburb of Chicago, complained of a sore throat and runny nose. Her mother gave her one extra-strength Tylenol capsule that, unbeknownst to them, was laced with highly poisonous potassium cyanide. And within a few hours, Mary was dead. Within days, other strange deaths in the Chicago region occurred. All of them, it turned out, had taken Tylenol shortly before they died. It was at this point in early October 1982 that investigators made the connection between the poisoning deaths and Tylenol, which at the time was the best-selling non-prescription pain reliever sold here in America. The gelatin-based capsules were popular because they were easy to swallow. Unfortunately, each victim swallowed a Tylenol capsule laced with a lethal dose of cyanide. Of course, immediately there was a giant recall of more than 31 million bottles of Tylenol that were in circulation. Tainted capsules were discovered in early October in a few grocery stores and pharmacies in the Chicago area, but fortunately they had not been sold. It was quickly established that the cyanide lacing occurred after the cases of Tylenol left the factory. Someone must have taken bottles off the shelves of local grocers or drugstores, laced the capsules with poison, and returned the restored packages to the shelves to be purchased by unsuspecting victims. To this day, they have yet to discover who did it. Now, in response, the makers of Tylenol developed a new version of the pill called a caplet. A tablet coated with a slick, easy-to-swallow gelatin, but far harder to tamper with than the older capsules that could be easily opened, laced with a contaminant, and then placed back in the older non-tamper-proof bottles. They also developed tamper-proof packaging, which included foil seals, and other features making it obvious to the buyer if foul play was invo- has been involved. While pastoring in Pontiac, Illinois, Pete Giles was one of the church's deacons. He was the production manager for Selig Company. That's Giles spelled backwards. For his dad, his father had designed, developed, and then started a company to manufacture the foil seals and other seals for the food and pharmaceutical industries. He turned that little foil seal into a multi-million dollar business. Because today, everything is sealed. Everything is sealed. I mean, ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, pretzels in a jar, all the over, over-the-counter medications and vitamins, prescription medicines I received from my mail order um, account, they all come sealed. Even if you buy oil for your car, the containers are sealed, antifreeze, cooking oil, you name it, it's all sealed for your protection. And we're warned not to buy 
a product that if the seal is broken. For the seal guarantees the integrity and the purity of whatever is inside that bottle. It guarantees that it's in the original form in which it was created and shipped. Everything is packaged today in tamper-proof, child-proof, and sometimes even senior citizen-proof bottles. Hard for us to open. Now, according to, <clears throat> according to Revelation chapter 5, and we looked at this last week, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Son of David, the Lamb of God, takes a seven-sealed scroll from his Father, the title deed to the earth and the kingdoms of this world. He is the only one that we found that is worthy to do so. No one else has the right to the title deed of the earth to redeem God's creation and to establish God's rule here upon the earth. The scroll guarantees that Jesus Christ will receive his inheritance promised by his fathers, which is the kingdoms of this world. But as we saw last time, the problem is the presence of a squatter, a usurper, the evil one who has claimed the kingdoms of the world as his own and refuses to give them up without a fight. He has won over the hearts of men and kingdoms and today is worshipped as the God of this age. He exercises control today over principalities and powers over the spiritual darkness in high places. The kingdoms of this world belong to him, or so he thinks. So the seven-sealed scroll that Jesus receives from his Father contains a step-by-step blueprint on how God the Father and Jesus Christ will evict the squatter and reclaim what is rightfully his. The scroll is sealed, and the seals are unbroken, meaning that it has not been tampered with nor altered in any way. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit planned it from the very beginning, from all of history. And so this scroll was sealed, detailing the measures Jesus Christ will employ to regain what was lost in the Garden of Eden and to reclaim what is rightfully his, the kingdoms of this world. Now when we come to Revelation chapter 6, Jesus Christ begins to unroll unroll the scroll one seal at a time. And he begins to take possession of what was rightfully his. Follow along as I begin Revelation 6, beginning at verse 1. He says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword." When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. 
and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed after him. And power was given to to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the field. Now I'm going to stop here this morning because I want to concentrate on the first four seals. And they've been described as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now when Jesus Christ begins to unroll the scroll, the breaking of the seals marks the beginning of God's wrath being poured out here upon the earth, upon sinful man, as the Lord takes back creation from the usurper. And considering this period of time of God's judgment, Jeremiah writes about this, Therefore prophesy against them all, These words and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the end of the earth for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, disasters shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest part of the earth. And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. This is, this is the tribulation period that is described. That when God pours out his wrath upon mankind, the second half of the seven-year tribulation period, the last three and a half years, is known as the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation. It's described in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. It says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is a time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. Daniel envisioned this great tribulation, and he saw it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where it says at that time, Michael stands up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Jesus Christ himself spoke of the day of Matthew 24 when he says that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, he says, know therefore that then there will be great tribulation such as not has been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor nor ever shall be, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. 
And so there's a great tribulation. There's tribulation period, the seven years, but the last three and a half years is the great tribulation. It will begin when the Antichrist desecrates the temple in Jerusalem by setting up an image of himself and claiming to be God. And this takes place in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. And at this point, all hell breaks loose down here on earth and God's judgments are poured out upon mankind. Now the question, as we're going to begin this morning, is does Jesus open the seven-sealed scroll at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, the last week of the year of God's 490-year plan, or does he wait until the middle of the tribulation, at the beginning of the great tribulation, to start reclaiming what is rightfully his? Now, as I studied this, a few scholars believe that the events of Revelation 6 and afterwards seem to coincide better with the last three and a half years before Christ returns to earth. So all the great events, all the judgments, the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, they are all compacted into this last three and a half years. My own view, though, is that Jesus Christ receives the sealed scroll from his father prior to the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, and that is what begins the tribulation. When the Antichrist signs the covenant with Israel, that's when Jesus receives the scroll. And the scroll represents specific divine judgments that are going to be poured out sequentially here upon the earth, but will have continuing effects or results. The seals, I believe, encompass the entire period of the tribulation. It's going to culminate in the return of Jesus Christ. To me, it seems best to understand the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, takes place during the first half of that tribulation period. The fifth one, which we're going to look at next week, the martyrs, stretching from the first half into the second half, and then the last two, definitely in the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. For the seventh sealed judgment, when that is open, it contains the seven trumpet judgments, and when the seventh trumpet judgment is blown, that contains the seven bold judgments that are going to be poured out right before the return of Jesus Christ. So the seven seals, I believe, contains all the judgments in this tribulation period, begins when Jesus Christ opens that first seal. Now let's look at the first seal, the first, four, first of four horsemen of the apocalypse. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. He says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, with a, a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, as each of the first four seals are broken, the con each of the seals are broken, the content of the scroll, it's not read, but rather it's acted out. And when the first seal is broken, when John first heard, was one of the four living creatures that surround the throne of God. Now, who are in the world of these? Revelation 4 describes them. 
describes a scene. It says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures each had six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These same living creatures are described in the book of Isaiah when, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and he saw the cherubims that were surrounding the throne of God and what they were saying is, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord. So one of these cherubims who constantly extols the holiness of God and says he did so, uh, did not rest day or night, but they said this, he stopped. He stopped for a moment and he cried with a loud voice, come and see. Now he's not the only one who stopped praising God. For the praises of Revelation chapter 5 cease. An anticipation of the coming judgments of God. This is serious that's happening. Now the first horseman is riding a white horse. He's riding a white horse. Now who is the rider of this white horse? Well, some believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the only one identified in Revelation, the book of Revelation, as riding on a white horse. Revelation 19 verse 11 states, Now I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So Jesus Christ at the end of the great tribulation period, will return from heaven riding on a white horse. In the book of Revelation, white is always associated with righteousness and with Christ. In the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, his head and hair were white like wool and white as snow. The 24 elders who are around the throne of God are all wearing white robes, Revelation 4.4. As are the multitude of martyrs, who are arrayed in white robes, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of Christ. Now, since this sealed document is about Christ reclaiming his inheritance, it seems plausible perhaps that he should lead the charge on the rider of the white horse. But there are some problems with this. Jesus being the first horseman of the apocalypse, first of all, there is significant differences between the writer of Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. The writer of Revelation 19 on the white horse is called faithful and true, and, on, and of him it is said that he in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Revelation 19 verse 11. That stands in contrast to the writer in Revelation 6-2 who is not faithful and true and who wages war for unjust conquest. Secondly, the timing is wrong. Jesus Christ returns at the end of the tribulation with the armies of heaven to conquer. It is said of him in Revelation 19 verse 15 that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So the timing is off. Third, the writer in Revelation 6 wears a crown 
It's a, it's a Stephanos. It is a victor's crown bestowed on him as a result of his conquest, whereas Jesus Christ, when he returns at the end of the tribulation, will be wearing on his head many crowns. That are, they are diadems. They are kingly or sovereignty crowns. And fourth, the four horses and their riders have an essential likeness to one another. The next three are all evil powers or tragedies and destruction. And so it makes no sense to put Jesus Christ in the same category with them. And then finally, Jesus Christ is the one who opens the seals one by one. He's controlling this whole process of reclaiming his what's rightfully his. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Scripture says that Jesus seats at the right hand of the Father until God makes his enemies his footstool and then he's going to come back and so jesus is at the right hand of the father god is at work and in, in, in these matters of wrath and judgment upon mankind in order to bring them down to the level where they become his footstools and he's going to return at the end and so the writer it seems strange for him. The rider on the white horse bears the unmistakable marks of a counterfeit. And that is of the Antichrist himself. Now after the rapture of the church, the sudden disappearance of all true believers, it's going to open the floodgate for an outbreak of deception and counterfeit Christ who will claim to have the answer to the chaos that's going to be caused by the rapture. This world's going to be in bad shape and we're gone because people from all walks of life and all positions in in our society are going to be plucked up and out of here the world will be looking for someone to lead to provide peace and security in an uncertain world the world desperately desires for world peace and that's going to play into satan's hands and the antichrist's hands for the Antichrist is going to be able to convince the world that he can provide world peace and security. He's going to broker a peace deal with Israel. And according to Daniel 9.27, he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. He's going to pass himself off as a man of peace. The rider on the white horse, if you notice, has a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows which says that he is honored, he's honored with a crown, a victor's crown, that's given to him, indicating that his victories are achieved by diplomacy. By diplomacy. He carries the bow, perhaps indicating that if necessary, he would use military might, but he doesn't need to because he achieves his victories without shedding blood. His main means of conquering is going to be cunning deceit. He's going to deceive people. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they might believe the lie. See, the world is going to be hoodwinked by the Antichrist. They're going to think he is a man of peace. You know, writing about the future deceitfulness of this, this period of world peace, Paul writes, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. 
And so the world peace that's brokered by the Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation period is not going to last. Because there are three more horsemen to come. And they will take that peace. Now you might be wondering to yourself how or why Jesus Christ would employ the Antichrist. Why would he employ the Antichrist in accomplishing his goal of reclaiming the kingdoms of this world? Doesn't the Antichrist work for Satan? Well, yes, he does. He does. But God also uses him to accomplish his plan. You know, I've been reading through the book of Jeremiah. Actually, I'm in Ezekiel right now, but throughout the minor pro- uh, the major prophets through my devotions, and in reading through the prophets in the Old Testament, you will find that God judges nations for their immorality and their idolatry, and in doing so, he directs godless, ruthless nations to come against others to destroy them. He did so with, with Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. He directed the Assyrians in 722 B.C. to come against that kingdom because of their spiritual adultery and idolatry and to destroy the nation and to carry them off into, the, into to Assyria. In 606 B.C., God used the forces of Babylon as a means of judging the southern kingdoms of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar's forces marched into Jerusalem, killed vast numbers of Jews, including their religious leaders, took many captive to Babylon, including Daniel, and then came back again to destroy the city, tear down the wall, and burn the temple in 586 B.C. See, in both cases, God used godless nations as a means of judging Israel. And so God has a track record of using godless individuals as his instruments of judgment. But may I also say to you that he holds them accountable. He holds them accountable for their ruthless actions, and thus he subsequently judges and destroys both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And in the same way, in the future, God, I believe, is going to use the Antichrist as an instrument to accomplish his purposes and plans. And one of the purposes of the tribulation period, the last week of God's 490-year plan for the Jewish people, is to prepare the Jews for their coming Messiah and for his kingdom. And so he's going to use that anti-Semitism and persecution by the Antichrist to purify the Jews during this tribulation period. And at the end, So that at the end, there's going to be a longing for the return of their Messiah. And when he comes, they're going to openly embrace him. May I say also that God's going to hold the Antichrist accountable for what he does. And his doom is already spelled out for us at the end of the tribulation. When Jesus returns, Revelation 19.20 reveals that the beast, that is the Antichrist, was captured. And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. He has a hot time coming. So the first horseman of the apocalypse, I believe, the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. He's going to offer the world peace. He's going to be the answer man. He's going to, he's going to 
have a peace that he's offered by, not by military victories, but rather a peace by agreement. He's going to promise a golden age of peace and prosperity and in gratitude the world will honor him, give him a victor's crown, elevate him to the position of supreme leadership. But the era of world peace is going to be short-lived. For notice what it says in verse 3 as Jesus opens the second seal. For it says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. The second horseman of the apocalypse is war and bloodshed. War and bloodshed. Sometime during the first half of the tribulation period, world peace turns to worldwide conflict as peace vanishes from this world. It was granted to the second rider, the rider on the red horse, to take peace from the earth. Now God is in control. Jesus Christ is the one that's unrolling the scroll, breaking the seals, and during the first part of the tribulation, after a period of relative peace, the world's going to turn violent. Men will slay one another at unprecedented rate. Violent slaughter will become commonplace. With the restraining force of the, of the Holy Spirit removed through the church, when the church is removed, man will be given into his sinful, violent ways. You know, every day we see on the evening news or the morning news, if you watch the news in the morning, senseless shootings and murders on the streets of Philadelphia that are happening every day at an alarming rate. But that's not going to be anything like what's going to happen during the tribulation period, when men turn against one another. For the rider on the red horse was given a great sword. The ancient word for sword is, the, is a macaria, which was the short stabbing sword carried by Roman soldiers in the battle. It wasn't the big one, but it's just the one that they had on their side. It was a weapon that was used for assassinations. The fact that this is a great sword indicates the extent of the killings and the wars that are going to take place. So just as the Antichrist was the architect of world peace, so he's going to play a major role in the wars to follow. When war breaks out, he will have no choice but to resort to war himself in order to preserve his power as the ruler of the West. And he will be as skillful at war as he was at promoting peace. Daniel chapter 8, in a vision of the latter times, Daniel 8.24 reveals that a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Now, we do not know how many wars are going to be during this tribulation period, especially during the first half of the tribulation. The scriptures are silent on this. Although we do know that there's always going to be wars and rumors of wars that are going to take place in the last days. But we do know that when the Antichrist breaks the covenant in the middle of the tribulation with Israel, when he desecrates the temple by setting up an image of himself, requiring people to worship him, that this is going to touch off a major conflict. And that major conflict is recorded in Daniel chapter 11. 
We will look at that in a few weeks. As we, and we know that at the end of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to muster the armies of this world at the Battle of Armageddon to engage the returning Christ in conflict. And so, and he's going to be soundly defeated at that time by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is going to be a period of time in which there's going to be war, there's going to be violence, there's going to be a lot of killings taking place. Now war and bloodshed lead naturally to the third horseman of the apocalypse, described in verse 5. Follow along as I read verse 5. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse, and he who saddled it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The third horseman of the apocalypse is famine. Famine. A black horse symbolizes famine. Lamentation chapter 5 verse 10 states, Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Famine, blackness of, of famine. You know, famine is the logical consequence of worldwide wars. Food supplies are destroyed. Supply lines are disrupted. And those involved in food production are killed. We're seeing that today and happening just in the invasion of Ukraine by the Russian troops. The lack of food in the supermarkets in the cities of Ukraine. People living on a subsistent diet, scrounging around to find something to eat. Today in many third world countries, people stand in food lines as there's nothing to eat or no money to buy the food. Nothing in the stores. Even here in the United States, we have people that do not have enough to eat. You know, in many ways, we're fortunate in this country to have supermarkets that are full of food. But we, too, have felt the pinch during this pandemic when many of our shelves, especially in the meat department, were bare due to the processing, shutting plants, shutting down, or supply chain problems. But the symbol of the rider with a set of scales means that in the future, there's going to be rationing. There's going to be rationing of food during the tribulation as it's going to be hard to find. War also brings hyperinflation. Hyperinflation. In Jesus' day, a denarius was a one day's wage. You went out and worked, and you were paid one denarius. It was also the payment that a Roman soldier received for every day that he worked. One denarius. It was enough money to put food on the table for the family, to pay the, for the necessities of life, shelter, clothing, whatever other needs one might have. But during the tribulation, a denarius's buying power is going to be greatly diminished. One denarius will buy one quart of wheat, three quarts of barley. One denarius... A quart of wheat was enough to feed one person for one day. A quart of wheat, if you bought barley, a grain that's low in nutritional value, usually was fed to the animals, you would have enough to feed a family of three. They've estimated that the cost is 12 times higher than normal. That is hyperinflation. Hyperinflation. 
I mean, we're complaining today because gas prices have gone up in part due to the war in Ukraine and other measures our government has taken to curtail production here in America. You know, as a result of rising fuel costs, everything else has gone up as well. In the grocery stores, um, clothing, entertainment, services, everybody's charging more. But we know nothing of hyperinflation like the people will experience during the tribulation period. You work a whole day and you just have enough money to buy a little bit of food to eat. That'll be it. Now it's interesting that God cautions the people do not harm the oil and the wine. I'm not sure why. The famine, will, while severe, is only partial. Basic food staples will become priceless luxuries. Olive oil and wine, which were used for preparation and cooking of foods, they'll be readily available, but you won't have anything to cook it with, you know, uh, to cook with that. Uh, and uh, probably will be extremely expensive, available only to the super rich. So there's war. There's poverty. There's famine. Uh, that results from Jesus breaking the first three seals, and that leads naturally to the fourth. The fourth horseman of the apocalypse that's unsealed in verse 7. It says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and with, by the beast of the earth. The fourth horseman of the apocalypse is death. Death. These horses pale in color. It's the ancient word for chloros, from which we get our English words chlorine and chlorophyll. It refers to a sickly, pale, yellow, green color that is characteristic of the decomposition of a corpse. And so fittingly, the rider who sat on it has the name of death, and he's followed, and following him was Hades. In other words, he, he saw following death the grave digger who was bearing death's victims. And death in Hades was given power over a fourth of the earth to kill. That's a staggering amount of people. A staggering amount. You know, as that Friday, as I did my research and wrote the sermon on Thursday into Friday, as of Friday, the estimated population of the earth went online and Googled it. It was 7.9 billion people. 7.9 billion. Now, I don't know how many born-again Christians there are in this world. I don't have that idea. Those that are genuinely believers who's going to be taken out of here when the rapture of the church takes place. But there's Part of that 7.9 billion are going to be gone. I just took it, I just said, well, I kind of wanted to make things easy for me. So I said, let's say that there are 1.9 billion of us spread around the world. That might be a, a little bit high, I don't know. That would leave about 6 billion people, which would mean 1.5 billion will die as a result of the fourth sealed judgment. 1.5 billion people, one-fourth of the world's population at the time. Now death, it says here, is going to have four means at his disposal to accomplish his grim task. The sword, hunger, death, and 
the beast of the earth. Now the first two we've already considered in the second and third sealed judgment. The sword would be death as a result of wars and killings. Hunger would be a death as a result of famine that's caused by the third horseman of the apocalypse. But what about the next two? Death and evil wild beasts. Now at first glance it seems odd that death would use death to cause death. However, the ancient word for death can also be translated pestilence or disease. Pestilence or disease often follow war and famine. Throughout human history, disease has killed on a far more massive scale than war. The last two years, 6.14 million deaths worldwide have been attributed to COVID-19. Now, many debate the accuracy of that number, and I'm not here to debate that this morning, but still, that's a lot of people that have died. 6.14 million people. In comparison, the estimate of those died as a result of the Vietnam War is around 3 million people. An estimated 30 million died during the great influenza epidemic of 1918-1919, but about the same number who died as a result of World War II, the deadliest of all wars. In a world that's ravaged by war and famine, it's inevitable that such diseases will be widespread and deadly. And so will wild animals on the earth. Now that's interesting. That's interesting since most wild animals that we think dangerous to man are either extinct or on the endangered species list or isolated and unpopulated areas. But perhaps during the tribulation, with food supplies being in short demand, that some wild animals will look for food in populated areas of the world and will take advantage of the defenseless. God will use them to terrorize and destroy Or the wild beast could also refer to animals and birds that have originated many of the plagues and deadly diseases in the past. Deadly creatures such as rats. They thrive in populated areas and are responsible for countless deaths throughout history, both by eating food supplies and spreading deadly disease. The Black Death, a 4th century outbreak of the bubonic plague carried by rats wiped out one-fourth to one-third of Europe's population. In a world that's ravaged by war, famine, and disease, the rat population may very well explode. Now may I say to you, it's interesting that in the past, God threatened to use all four means as instruments of judgment against Israel. In Ezekiel 14, God said that because of Israel's persistence and faithfulness, he says, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off the supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. He goes on to say that he might cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it and make it desolate so that no man may pass through because of the beast. He also threatened to use war for in verse 17. He speaks of bringing a sword against it. And then disease in verse 19, where he threatens to send a pestilence into the land and pour out my fury on its blood. 
His conclusion is found in verse 21 of Ezekiel 14. He says, For thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. So on one day, when the fourth seal is broken, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse rides on the scene, God is going to unleash his four severe judgments. Not on Jerusalem, but on the entire world. And one-fourth of the world's population is going to die as a result of it. Now the first four seals clearly describe some very frightening judgments without parallel in human history. Nothing has ever happened since John had this vision in A.D. 90 that compares or fulfills these judgments. It's all still future for nothing as devastating as this has occurred, and yet these four judgments are just the beginning. They're just the beginning of a horrific worldwide judgment that the sinful, disobedient, unrepentant world will experience. Far worse will be the remaining sealed judgments, and then the trumpet and bold judgments to follow. Now, my friends, if you know Jesus Christ, the Savior this morning, if you have humbled yourself, admitted that you're a sinner, unable to save yourself, have transferred the trust from yourself of your own good works to the finished work of Christ on the cross, who died for your sins to provide for you eternal salvation. If you're trusting in Him this morning and Him alone, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Why? For God is... Not, did not appoint you to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with him. We've not been appointed to wrath. We've not been appointed to experience the wrath of God that he's going to pour out upon this earth. But he's going to come back for us. Jesus is coming back for us to take us to be with himself before this period of wrath begins, and we're going to be with him. In heaven. If you're listening to my voice this morning, you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, have never trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, eternal life, let me say to you, you have everything to fear. For in the writer of the Hebrews it says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For when God takes vengeance and pours out His wrath here on earth, there's going to be no hiding from it. There is no escaping if you neglect such a great salvation. And so I beg of you this morning to humble yourselves, admit that you're a sinner unable to save yourself, and place your trust in the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Trust Jesus today and escape the fury of the four horsemen of the apocalypse.